Let's open our Bibles to the book of Romans. Romans chapter five. Some of you are like, whoa, 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 whoa. What happened to Revelation? I thought we were doing Revelation. We just finished the seventh letter. I was getting excited for chapter four. Don't worry. Um, Some of you might actually recall when we started Revelation a couple months ago, I did mention that we were going to pause at the end of the seven letters, and we were going to take six or seven weeks to do this sort of like sub-series, which is going to start today. It'll take us up through Christmas and into the new year, and then about the second week of January, we will jump back into Revelation chapter four. Um, but this, this is a, yeah, we're going to take a break, and we're going to talk about grace. We're going to spend a few weeks, in fact, talking about the grace of God, amazing grace, week one. Um, we'll, we'll go a few weeks of grace. I have some really amazing guest preachers lined up. Um, in fact, next week, we have a very special guest preacher. I'm not going to say who, but guys, it's going to be, it's going to be amazing. Um, yeah, we'll talk about grace. Then we'll do Christmas right up into January. And by the time we finish the grace series, we will then take five days to begin the year as a church family, praying and fasting together. Something that we do every year, in fact, as we, we all sort of, sort of reacclimate ourselves to begin the year. Um, so that's what we're doing. Romans chapter five, you guys ready? The words will be on the screen, as you can see. Chapter 5, starting in verse 15. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin, The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Next slide, please. Verse 18. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one act of righteousness or one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I think I better pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your gift of grace. 
Thank you for coming to not simply tell us what to do or to give us a new teaching, but to actually do something for us. And I pray that now as we consider your grace, that you would open our hearts, open our minds, help us to understand and give us a greater revelation of who you are and what you've done for us in this incredible gift of grace. In Jesus' name, amen. So what we've just read is like a, a piece of a very long, complicated thought uh, that Paul, the apostle who, who penned these words in his letter to the Romans, um, took several chapters to sort of expound upon. This is, this is deep thoughts by the apostle Paul. Um, and it's hard to, it's very tempting to want to read just like the whole chapter very tempting to just, like, let's just spend the next hour and we'll read through the entire letter to the Romans because really the context is quite essential. Um, and maybe we'll do that someday. But what we're reading here is really, it's, it's, it's absolutely theological, it's complex. There's words that we don't use every day or ever, like trespass, like Righteousness. We, we know that word, but do we know what it means? Justification, condemnation, um, things like reigning in life. Uh, Paul's using a lot of very complex words to, in fact, actually unpack a very simple, profound, powerful, but simple concept, and that is the grace of God. Instead of simply watching the world spiral out of control into the chaos that we call sin, God enters into that chaos. He enters into the darkness. He becomes one of us. He became one of us. He put on flesh. His name was Jesus. He was God with us, and he did something about our sin. There's a concept here that's almost assumed, um, if we had backed up a few verses, it would have been much more explicit, but that is that sin has always existed from the beginning, or at least since the one man, Adam, sinned, rebelled against God that fateful day in the garden. Maybe you've heard the story. And something, a cataclysmic uh, uh, a domino effect took place, a chain reaction of sin and death, and sin and death, and when Adam and his partner, wife Eve, rebelled against God, chose to doubt their maker rather than to trust him and his goodness. They, they decided to become their own arbiters of good and evil. They thought that maybe we could be our own gods and we could decide what's best for human flourishing and creation. And it went terribly wrong. And the next thing that happened, their own sons ended up fighting and one of them killed the other. Death began to reign in the earth. And it's like it's always been that way. Ever since, like the beginning of time, we've lived in this world that feels slightly broken. Slightly. It's beautiful. You see God's fingerprints all over the place. I'm not a pessimist. 
but there is something fundamentally broken about our world, about us as human beings, when it comes to our relationships. And so that's the assumption. That's the, uh, that's the point that Paul begins with. Sin is a problem. It's always existed. And you know what? Every philosophy, worldview, religion, or whatever attempts to deal with that reality. You know that. You might be sitting here thinking, oh gosh, here we go. Here we go again. The Christian message, the gospel, the, the Bible story. Mm-hmm. Yep. But you know what? Every person out there, whether you call yourself a Christian, religious, or not, we're all wrestling with this question, with this problem. The world is broken. Who's going to fix it? If God is real, most people on planet Earth absolutely believe that God is real. I find it rather difficult to, to believe he's not. Are all asking the question, what's the answer? What are we going to do about it? God's answer is grace. He doesn't simply stand aloof. He doesn't just point the finger. He doesn't even just give us a set of rules. Sin existed before the law was ever even given in the first place. We've read that when the law was given, the the commandments, God explicitly articulates what is sin? What, what is actually so sinful about sin? And we find that God is not arbitrary in his judgment. He's very exact. And he says, what sin is anything that's less than my best, my intentions, my vision for my creation? Which I reckon he's absolutely entitled to. He's the creator. Instead of God simply giving us rules to try to sort of uh, ascend to or to keep perfectly. God gives us himself. The law seemed to highlight the reality of our situation. The commandments explicitly tell us that murder is and always was and always will be like a bad idea. The law was a painful reminder of how desperately we need our creator, our God, to help us, to rescue us. Grace is not just nice, it's utterly and absolutely necessary. So what is it? What is grace? What is abundant grace? And how does it transform our relationship with God and with each other? That's the question. I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven points. Imagine that. See how far we get. Only seven. Wow, this is gonna, this will be fun. Okay. And they're all alliterated, so you know they're anointed. Number one, grace pardons. Grace, uh, it says in verse, six, verse 16, in Romans 5, judgment followed the sin and brought condemnation, but the gift, the gift of grace, followed the trespasses of many and brought justification. 
So if the sin of the one man, Adam, caused this ripple effect of perpetual sin and death, the one righteous act of the man Jesus, the God-man, set an even greater cataclysmic effect that reversed, that over, uh, overthrew or overturned the verdict of death and brought life for the many. Justification. It's a, uh, the word is actually dikaiosine. It's a Greek word that has um, the, the connotations of declaration. It's something that a judge would declare over a guilty person. But instead of declaring that we are condemned and sentenced to death, he declares in Jesus that we have been pardoned, that we have been made new, that we are not only free to go, but we are welcomed into his family. We are pardoned because Jesus paid our debt for us. He suffered the consequences, he suffered the penalty, the just penalty for my sin, for my rebellion, for my self-centeredness, for my sin. This is, this is what we call justification. Um, this is where grace uh, really overlaps with mercy. This idea that God, in his mercy, because of his love, offers us grace. It speaks of his disposition towards criminals. Instead of throwing the book at criminals, there's something about the heart of God that would rather extend mercy or grace. It's his disposition to forgive. He has a gracious attitude towards his broken, wayward children. He pardons us. Instead, he gives us grace. It's humbling, and it's dignifying all at the same time. It's humbling because as soon as you start talking about the grace of God, there's the implication that I need to be pardoned. Who isn't offended by the idea that, oh, you're a guilty criminal and you deserve like capital punishment? Does anyone really feel like they deserve the death penalty in here? Maybe a few, few of you, yeah, okay. What did you do? <laughs> and we'll talk later, we'll talk later. It's humbling, as I like to say, it's a death blow to the ego. It says, no, no, you're, you're more screwed up than, than you realize and are probably willing to admit. Now, for some of us in here, though, you're like, no, no, I'll admit it. I know. I, I, absolutely, I know I need grace. But it's also dignifying. Because we're not, we're not all like prideful jerks in the room. Some of us are like, I do not need to be reminded of, of what a, a dirt bag I've been. But is there grace for me? Can God do something to somehow work beyond my depravity, my past, my sickness, my bondage? The answer is absolutely yes. Not only does he pardon our sin, he invites us into his family. He doesn't say, all right, good luck, kid. Get out there. I don't want to see you again. So says the judge. No, he, he takes off his robes and he says, you're pardoned. Now get in here. You were lost, but now you're found. We're gonna have a party and every angel in heaven erupts in celebration. That's the family of God. That's grace. But it's only the beginning. I think for many Christians, this is sort of like the base, our base understanding of grace. It is so, so much more amazing than that, as amazing as that is. Number two, grace empowers it says in verse 17 if by the trespass 
It's another word for sin. If by the trespass of the one man, Adam, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace at the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ, just as death reigned through sin, so now does grace reign in life. Yes, grace is God's prerogative to pardon, but it's also his power to break chains, free captives, vanquish evil, and reign over sin. In Jesus, by grace, we are destined to overcome sin in our lives because God gives us his grace to overcome. Grace is not merely some kind of divine disposition, although it is. Grace is more than mere affection. Grace is effective. It's not just sentimental. It is God's power given to us to overcome sin. Um, I love how Paul, he writes in another one of his letters, his second letter to the church in Corinth. He says, I wanted, this is the first chapter of 2 Corinthians. He said, I wanted to come to you because I was eager for you to have a second experience of grace. You guys ever read 2 Corinthians? It's a bizarre thing to say. I wanted to come to you. I wanted to impart something to you. I don't, I don't know exactly what he had in mind, but he wanted to come and spend time with God's people because he was eager for them to have a second experience of grace. Grace is experiential. It's not just an idea, it's not just a concept, it's not just a doctrine, it's actually something we're meant to experience in our life. It's the power of God that changes us and causes us, enables us to overcome evil, bondage, chains, sickness, habits, etc. in this life, at least in part. Um, any of you guys remember seeing that documentary called In Search of Sugar Man? No one saw that? You guys saw it. You remember that? It's a great documentary. Uh, it was about a guy. He was an aspiring pop artist in the 70s here in America. His name was Rodriguez, and his big hit was Sugar Man. Um, and most of the documentary is just the story of this guy's sort of life and aspirations to make it big. He was an excellent songwriter, but he didn't quite have like the rock star look, whatever that means or meant in the 70s. And so you know, he writes these amazing songs, gets really cl close several times to kind of breaking into the industry, um, has a bit of a successful tour in Australia, pretty much flops in America. No one's playing his stuff. No one's buying his records. So finally, he just gives up. He calls it quits. It's like, it's not meant to be. He had all these dreams. He felt like, this is, this is it. This is what I was given life for. This is my destiny. But it doesn't work out, so he gives up. Now, somehow, his music made it over to South Africa during the apartheid era. Uh, no less. And it gets into the country and it begins to blow up underground. All the underground DJs are playing Sugar Man. And he becomes like a superstar, an overnight superstar in apartheid South Africa. So this is like back, like the, the apartheid was like, what, 1948 to 1990? And the whole world was like, forget South Africa. 
you, you guys are just nuts. Like we're, you know, sanctions and all of that. Terrible, terrible situation. My wife grew up in South Africa. Um, so his records get over to South Africa. Now in the 90s, a couple of South Africans in Cape Town begin to wonder to themselves, huge Rodriguez fans, begin to wonder to themselves, whatever happened to this guy? No one knows. Is he dead? Is he still writing music? Like, what's his story? And so they begin to research, and before long, they realize, I don't think this guy's dead at all. I think he's still alive. So they go to the States, they find him, and they're like, oh my gosh, Rodriguez is alive. And of course, they, they think that he's going to be living, living it up, you know, super mega star pop artist living in a mansion, but he's working as a custodian for some high school. And they say, hey, do you have any idea like what a mega superstar you are in our country? I mean, you are up there with like Elvis and the Rolling Stones and the Beatles. Like, no, like record sales wise or radio play wise, you are a mega superstar. And Rodriguez is like, like that's crazy. Like this is obviously a scam. They're like, no, it's real. Just come with us. We, we can prove it to you. We'll show you. Long story short, they talk him into doing just one tour in South Africa. And he sells out every major stadium in the country. <laughs> 20 years had gone by. And the whole time, he had no idea who he was. I share that story because this is a picture of grace. How many of us, we know that we're forgiven. If you're a Christian, if you love Jesus, if you put your faith in him, I hope you know, if you know nothing else, that you are forgiven, and when you die someday, you're going to go to heaven. But that is only the start. You know inside that God has called you to greatness. You read the story of Jesus, and then something like, and this is who you are meant to be like. You're meant to overcome the world like our Savior, You're meant to conquer sin and death like King Jesus. And you may not, you're not going to live in mansions. You may not sell out stadiums, but you're called to live an abundant life that actually reflects the glory of God himself. You are meant to be who God created you to be, a reflection of his glory, living in freedom, living in love, living in power, living like Christ in this life and for eternity to come. And yet it's very hard for us to believe that that's like at all in any way our reality in this life. And sometimes the problem is we do not realize that in Christ you are a mega superstar created to sell out stadiums for the glory of God. I hope you hear me right. I'm not going prosperity. All right, good luck. I I would actually pay money to see Ken perform on stage. Guys, grace is more than God's pardon. It is, it is his power to live like Christ. And we need to know that. We need to embrace that. We need to begin to see ourselves the way our creator sees us in Jesus. Number three, grace abundantly provides Verses 20 and 21, it says, where sin increased, grace increased all the more so that as sin reigned in death, grace 
also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord where sin increased, grace increased all the more. It abundantly provides so that we might not just be pardoned, not just receive power, but the kind of power that abounds, that is more than enough. It doesn't run out. It doesn't run low. There is no point at which God stops being gracious towards his children. It's always more than enough. My wife told me uh, just two days ago, she caught Judah counting. You know, six-year-olds, they discover counting. And it's a really, really big deal to get into the 100 club when you're in kindergarten. You know what I'm talking about? Counting to 100, kind of a big deal. Power of God. And so Shirley caught him the other day. Um, He was counting to himself. And he said, Mama, check me out. I can count to a million. So he starts counting by tens. I can count to a billion. I can count to a trillion. He's like, and he's counting like 10 million, 20 million, 30 million, a billion, 10 billion, 20 billion, 30 billion, a trillion, 10 trillion, 20 trillion, 30 trillion, gazillion, 10, 20, 30 gazillion, 10 God, 20 God, 30 God. (laughs) And he couldn't think of anything bigger than God. My boy's got good theology. (laughs) This is the grace of God. It's an abundant reality. It's an abounding provision where sin increases. And can we all agree that there's a little sin in this world? There's a little sin in my life, but where sin increases, God's grace abounds all the more. It doesn't run low. It doesn't run out. It is eternal. It is like God. And why is this important? Because Jesus, if you want to follow him, if you want to learn the way and follow Jesus, he will ask you to give more than you've got. He will ask you to give more than you've got and he will give you more than you can even think to ask for. If you follow Jesus long enough, eventually he's going to look at the crowd, he's going to look at the world's problems, and then he's going to look at you. And he's going to say, you feed them. And you're going to think to yourself, come again? What what do you want me to do exactly? Do Do you have any idea who I am, how small I am, how weak I am, how little I have. And Jesus said, yeah, you feed him. And he asks us to give more than we've got. Which is a really uncomfortable place to be. You're following Jesus. You're like, oh, I'm so glad I'm forgiven. I'm so glad I, I, I'm in the family. I'm so glad I have the power of God. I'm so glad it doesn't run out, but then all of a sudden it's like, yeah, I know it's not going to run out. I'm giving you more than enough for every good deed. I'm blessing you so that you will be blessed and that you will be a blessing. It's this, uh, God is like obsessed with multiplication. Exponential provision. More than enough 
provision. And God asks us to give more than we've got, which inevitably leads us to a place where we feel very weak, we feel unable, we feel incapable, we feel like, how am I supposed to to live this life? How am I supposed to, to live a life that reflects the goodness, the beauty, the strength, the patience, the love of God when I feel like I can't even love myself? Like, I'm a mess. I can't stop looking at pornography. I can't stop obsessing over my feelings and anxiety. And I'm just like, I'm just so messed up inside. And you're telling me that I'm supposed to somehow reflect the glory of God. What does that even mean? And Jesus said, yes, exactly. Because my grace is more than enough. It's made perfect in weakness. Jesus constantly leads us to a place where I'm like, I am at the end of myself. I got nothing left, and you want me to do what? Exactly. Learn to rest in your king. It's a very hard but important lesson. Jesus doesn't just give us grace to get the job done. Okay, now you're thinking, well, you're contradicting yourself. No, no, just. Bear with me. He doesn't just give us grace to get the job done. He says, come walk with me. Learn how to rest in me so that the work you do, you will know that it's my work in you for the world to see. Uh, Paul, he writes elsewhere. He said that God puts his surpassing power within us. He says, but think of it like, think of it like someone putting something of an invaluable a value into a jar of clay. The jar is not particularly impressive. It's a nice jar, but it's frail, it's finite, but inside there's the surpassing power so that when people look on, they'll know that this is a power that's not from you, but that is from God himself. God walks with us. He calls us to give more than we've got and then he gives us more than we can even think to ask for. That's God's grace. Grace perseveres. Verse 21 says that this grace that we're talking about leads to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's, it's important to know that it's abundant, that God's grace is more than enough for the life that he has called us to live, but we need to remember as well that it doesn't just sort of like trail out towards the end. How many people do you know? How many marriages have you, be sensitive here, how many of you know that it's one thing to start great, it's another thing to finish strong? It's one thing to begin the race, but it's another thing to run in such a way that you might win the prize. It's like when you run an ultra marathon. You guys all know what I'm talking about, right? Because obviously I do that. It's one thing to start, but it's another thing to actually cross that line on two feet and not on all fours. Although if I crossed even just like rolling across, that would be, that would be a glorious moment. God's grace perseveres. Um, I love, I love the John Newton's popular hymn, Amazing Grace. You guys have heard of this song. 
He says, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I've already come. The grace hath brought me, tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. God gives us grace to start. God gives us grace to actually get home. It never runs out. He never runs out. God never leaves us. That's one of Jesus' most fundamental promises. I won't ever leave you. Not only am I strong enough, but I'm faithful enough. I'm for you. I'm not going to abandon you. I'm not going to leave you to figure it out once you're towards the end. It's the whole book of Galatians. Paul makes this very vehement argument. Are you so foolish to think that beginning in the spirit, beginning empowered by God's grace, are you now going to finish in your own strength? And how many of us attempt to do that simply because it's what we've been conditioned to do our entire lives. We're expecting God to leave us just like we've been left before. We expect Jesus to leave us alone because every other person in our lives that was meant to be there when it counted the most wasn't there when they were supposed to be. We are used to people leaving us. Even when we attempt to convince ourselves, no, it's going to be different this time. When the stress levels rise, our default kicks in and we assume that they're going to leave just like everyone else. And the grace of God perseveres. Where we fall short, this is very important. As a, as a pastor, I don't mean to sound condescending, but as a pastor, this is something I deal with all the time. People come into the church, which is the body of Christ, but it's not Christ. And people look to other people who are the hands and feet of Jesus, but not Jesus. And we get disappointed by each other because I expect my brother and my sister and my church to give me what only Jesus himself can. In every one of our human relationships, yes, including Christians in the church, for sure, eventually it's like, I don't have what you need. I will give you everything I've got. Like a, like a brother, like a brother in the family of God. But I'm, I'm guaranteeing you right now, up front, eventually you're gonna want more from me than I've got. And is that a, don't call it a contradiction, call it a paradox. God asks me to give more than I've got, and he gives me more than I can think to ask for, but only Jesus himself has grace that perseveres beyond human shortcomings. In your marriage, if you're not married, write this down, because someday you might be, and this could possibly save your marriage. You will try to get from your spouse what only God himself can give you. You will try to make an idol out of your spouse and it will ruin your marriage. It's, it's what the first man did. God gave him a partner, Eve, partners to rule together, to reign over creation, to cultivate this beautiful project that God started and then invited his people to participate in. And what did Adam do? Instead of trusting God, He took the word of his wife. 
Now, I don't mean that to be like a sexist thing whatsoever. It could just as easily have been the other way around. But the point is this. Instead of fighting for his wife, instead of being there for his wife, instead of loving his wife, he made an idol out of his wife. And he took the very gift of God and turned it into something that resulted in brokenness. And we will do that to each other. We'll do it to our jobs. We'll do it to our children. We'll do it to our marriages. We'll do it to everything around us. Only to be constantly reminded that only God himself perseveres. Only Jesus himself never runs out. I'm going to skip one of the points. I'm going to skip another point. And I'm going to end with this point. Grace is personal. Can we put the uh, next slide up, please? I love this picture. Imagine that being a, a warrior father, maybe a warrior mother, and their child. If you were to imagine yourself in this, that picture, uh, you're the little girl, just so you know. And the warrior is our king, Jesus. Grace is personal. It's not just a, uh, a deposit into our bank account. It's not just a superpower that the universe bestows upon us. It's God himself who fights for us, who goes before us, who dies for us. who never stops loving us. Jesus pardons our debt to God. He laid down his life for us. He personally paid the debt for your sins and mine. Jesus walks with his sheep and gives us strength. He empowers us. He gives us grace to love our neighbors, even our enemies, the way he loves. Jesus, he provides for all of our needs when we come to the end of ourselves. He's there with us. He's there carrying us. He's there fighting for us. Jesus never leaves us. He perseveres. When everyone else is preoccupied with their own problems, Jesus is never too busy to help us.
when humanity comes up short, Jesus does not. When you're feeling overwhelmed, your thoughts, your emotions, when it feels like anxiety, uh, depression, suicidal thoughts are more real than anything else around you, it's Jesus who is there with you in the darkness. I say this almost every week, guys, but we're not gathered here to wax philosophical. To listen to me wax philosophical. We're not studying God's word because it's embedded within it are these like secret abstract knowledge. He opens God's word because within these words we meet God himself. Because God is the word. Because he's alive and Jesus promised that when we gathered like this he would be present with us. In spirit. He said, I don't, I don't feel him. I don't see him. I know. I know. I know. But did you know you do not have to have all five of your physical senses intact to experience sweet, intimate communion with your God? Did you know that? Did you know that you could be um, mentally disabled, have learning disabilities, and yet still experience sweet, powerful, real, life-changing intimacy with God? Why? Because he's not just an idea. The spirit of Christ is present with us, and he desires to be with us and to be in us like no other thing, feeling, idea in this life. It is so deeply personal. Jesus wants to be your friend. He wants a relationship with you. I don't care how cliche you might think that sounds. It will change your life if you let it, if you let him. Can we stand together, please? You're now listening to Grace City Portland.